My name is Larkin Seipel, and I was the cinematographer on Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Larkin Seipel, the director of photography for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Larkin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. What a movie this is. I mean... The name is perfect because it truly is everything, everywhere, all at once when you watch this film. Everyone's talking about it. Our audience has been obsessed with it for months now. And all I've heard from our listeners is you have to get Larkin on to talk about this. (laughs) We've got a lot of questions from our audience, too, and so much to talk about. Before we get there, I very quickly just want to thank our sponsor for today, Shotlister. Shotlister is the absolute best shot listing application for production in the business. There's just... There's no other option. Get Shotlister, use it. You'll be obsessed with it. We'll talk a little bit more about Shotlister later on in the show. And of course, remember to subscribe to us on our YouTube if you haven't already, because if you're only hearing this episode, you're kind of missing some of it. The whole point, it's a visual medium. Watch it, see the reaction of our of our guests, really get into the mindset of our guests. That's what it's all about. And that's what we do at the Go Creative Show YouTube page. So check it out for yourself. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So Larkin, there is so much to talk about with this film, but I kind of want to start with your first impression of it when you got the script, because let me read the synopsis here for those that are familiar or unfamiliar with the film. Here's the synopsis. When an, when an interdimensional rapture unravels reality, an unlikely hero must channel her newfound powers to fight bizarre and bewildering dangers from the multiverse as the fate of the world hangs in the balance. What? <laughs> like, like that? Huh? I can't even imagine what it felt like getting that script. I'd love to hear from you what that was like. Well, that, that's actually a, a much better pitch. The pitch I got was a woman is trying to finish her taxes and we finally see what happens. That was the original <laughs> pitch from Daniels. Um, um, I kind of knew it was brewing. They've been working on this story for like a, quite a long time. Um, but the first time I actually got the script, I was on an airplane and I think I read it twice. The first time I just ignored how absurd it was and how it didn't make sense. And the second time I actually sat down and tried to understand what they were trying to do. Um, and they were trying to do a lot, obviously. Um, the first thing I noticed was all the fight scenes were one line. So like, if you watch the fight scenes in the movie, they're, they're pretty epic or absurd, absurd, but in the script, they didn't have enough space to actually write it because they thought they were going to scare the producers away. So they just wrote cool fanny pack fight happens. And then next scene, Oh um, my God, and just reading it. I was like, okay, we're, we're going to have some problems when we're shooting it, but um, it was pretty exciting. It, it was a lot to take in. And I actually didn't fully comprehend it in the first draft I read because it was so confusing to read because you jump between so many different universes. But then with the Daniels, what you usually do with them is they you kind of sit down and they do an actual like pitch, almost like putting on a play in front of you. They'll actually like act out the whole thing in like a breakneck nonstop all like everything in there. Kind of like the movie pitch for the for the show. Really? So they'll go through all of that almost kind of like a sort of like a table read, I guess, but just with the two of them. 
Kind of. They've been doing that their um, their whole career. The Daniels pitch is what we call it. We started doing it with music videos where they would literally just play the song and then just like scream shout exactly what is going to be happening on like on screen as the song plays. And so for this film, you know, if you go to their little office in the back of Dan Kwan's house, there's a massive chalkboard with like the whole plot broken out into different nodes. Um, and then categories of different things and goals for each sequence. And you can there, they'll usually kind of walk you through the whole thing. Um, again, still at a breakneck speed without all the details filled in, but that's like the best way to, to kind of get inside the Daniel's head is to let them literally physically act it out. Cause they themselves are performers at heart. I think. Now I know you've worked with them quite a bit before, but when you read this script, did you, did it scare you at all? <laughs> Were you sort of like, I don't know if we can do this. I mean, after Swiss Army Man, nothing really was scary anymore. I mean, Swiss Army Man was such a small budget, and we have, you know, people riding jet skiing, farting corpses and bears and underwater work and wire work. This felt um, exciting because now we were going to actually have the means to try to do something crazy with some support. Um, no, I was really excited from the get-go. Just the idea of anyone giving you a script and being like, we need you to create 10 different like visuals or 10 different looks for different universes. And at the same time, it all has to be endearing and it can't be too over the top, which is a silly thing to say if you watch the film. It's very over the top. Um, but no, it was really exciting. I was, I was been kind of like, you know, kind of all my eggs have been in the basket for this film for the last five years. I've been kind of just waiting to actually get it made. And then of course, COVID happened when we shot it, which, <laughs> which made it more interesting. But yeah, no, I was, I was amped from the get-go. One of the biggest challenges, I think, uh, as a viewer, it's not really a challenge for the viewer, but as a viewer, it makes me think it was a challenge for the filmmakers, is how do you explain what's going on early enough that the audience will follow you and sort of let you take them on this journey? Because as a viewer, you need to understand enough to get it, but you don't need to understand everything. The balance there, it must just be incredible to achieve. Um you know, what are your thoughts on having to do that as a filmmaker? Um, well, the it's, you know, it's very, like, I think verse jumping is the most confusing concept in the film. The idea of what you have to do <laughs> to basically gain special powers, you know, to get to do the thing, you know, where Neo and Matrix goes, I know Kung Fu. How do you do that in this show? Um, and they actually repeat it like four or five times. Thank God. Like there's a very complicated version that Wayman pitches at the beginning and then he chews some bubble gum from under a desk and then verse jumps and you're like, what just happened? But they actually repeat it four or five times. And at the very end, like in the third act, they have the family members say, I think if they do something stupid, they get powers. Like they literally just like at that point, if you haven't figured it out, there's someone literally saying it for you. Um, yeah, that was like the whole pitch. And that, you know, the fun part about verse jumping was the all the crew was invited to to suggest different verse jumping ideas of what could trigger what could be something real dumb to get someone to verse jump. Um yeah. Did you suggest anything? Were you, were any of your ideas in there? Um I'm trying to remember <laughs> if there were some of my ideas in there. Um I think stapling something to someone's head was a part of them, but I think Jamie does that at one point. We all, we all spent a long, we all got confusing. There's actually a montage of verse jumping inside the, um, um, the dominatrix businessman's office, um, where there's, you see 10 people, like one person's like electrocuting themselves. One person's like humping a socket. One person's like, you know, photocopying his ass cheeks. Someone's singing the national anthem. It's a very surreal sequence, but, um, I'll try to remember. <laughs> it's a lot happens in the film. 
It's hard well, to remember as what, we're what talking, was there before. Yeah, as we're talking, if something pops into mind, just yell it out. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, I want to read this quote from the directors of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, they say, we wanted people to be overwhelmed and as confused as Evelyn, but not frustrated. More confused and curious. That's a fine line between overwhelmed, curious, and excited, and overwhelmed, and I can't take it anymore. I loved this quote because that is exactly how I felt as an audience member watching the movie. It was There was confusion there, but it wasn't overwhelming, and I trusted that there was going to be a resolution. I, I don't for some reason, I felt like everything I don't get is going to be explained. It's going to be worthwhile. I'm sticking with this, and I love this. And I think the film creates so much curiosity that it just draws you in. Can you talk to me from your perspective as the cinematographer? How did you sort of fulfill that goal of having things be confusing but not frustrating? Um. Yeah, confusion was a, a big theme, and when we were, we were shooting it, we were actually talking about good confusion and bad confusion, and good confusion being, you know, mystery and intrigue, and bad confusion being, like, I don't get it, I'm disconnecting, and the big the big choices that we made for that were, for the universes, we wanted them to be, like, pretty darn different, so we'd make big swings of color, so that when you jump between different universes, you could hopefully tell where you were. Even in like what we call the taxes universe, which is the universe where Michelle goes home and does her taxes, um, that coincides with um, Chinese New Year. So we made that universe very red. No, no other universe is that color. And the same thing with like the Wong Kar Wai verse, we went green. You know, Ratatouille, we went bluish, blue, red, white, more PTA. Um, and the other thing that that's a big part of it, and it's kind of taken from you know classic kung fu films. Or like um, you know, films from Hong Kong is, is really being with the character and being of their perspective, which is like you're whenever things happen, you're seeing a character witness it, and then you're seeing their POV, um, which is which basically makes the film really subjective. Um, so that no matter where what's happening in the film, even when you're lost, you know that you, what the what the character's goals are in that scene, even if you don't know how you got there. Um, the through line is pretty consistent that way. And that's the reason there's a lot of close-ups in the movie. Like a whole a lot of the movies just watching people watch other people and and see things and then and then calculate it. Like it's not um there's actually not a lot of wides. We were watching it again and I think my DIT was like, oh, we could have we should have gone wider more often. This whole film is really intimate. And I was like, well, it works, so we're not gonna change it. But um yeah, that was that was really the conceit behind it was trying to keep the emotional path really clear. Like even if it didn't make sense, you you completely understood what the character was feeling and what they were trying to do. Yeah, I think that was certainly achieved. And I want to dive a little bit more into this idea of making the, sure that all of the universes are unique enough that you know where you are. Um, talk to me about that. H- how did you sort of create the looks for each universe? What was important to you as you were developing these looks? Well, we like in prep, we, you know, it's so many departments are involved with that concept as well that we sat down early on. I think I made a PDF of like, you know, really big references for some of these universes and then did a color palette reference. And, you know, I think that one of the, we went for like additive and subtractive choices, like some places it's like, we don't want a specific color as opposed to this color. It's only one color, but you know, we, there's so many, so like the, the rock universe, we were going for National Geographic. Um, and so we wanted that to be very sharp um, and exposed and bright and crisp. You know, the the 
movie star universe with Michelle, we were like, oh, we'll do step printing and we're going to go monochromatic and have a big, this shift between gold and greens and yellows. You know, Ratatouille was a very weird ode to Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. So we went blue, white, and red with like some bigger backlit, just going to this more 90s American look. Um, you know, Hot Dog Fingers became what started out as a, you know, what we thought of as like a very classy romance delve we kind of became this weird rom-com take on a netflix film and then um <laughs> the universe is the closet universe is is oh no my dog's going crazy um the closet universe was um supposed to be only slightly different than the real universe same thing with other ones like there's some universes that are literally just like someone sneezed in one someone didn't in the other um I'm trying to figure out what the universes are left. And then by the end of it, they're just flying through universes. And yes. at that point we were just picking universes that were distinctly different. Like, you know, like a spooky place at night to like a house on fire to like a train track, just going for like the, like the biggest visual swings we could. Um, we also changed lenses between the universes and aspect ratios, you know, to find some universes were supposed to be kind of softer and more intimate. Some are supposed to be sharper and harsher. Um, all the flashbacks are actually for three in the film. Um, we wanted every time you saw a flashback to know that if it's four or three, it means it's happened in the past or it's different. Something, something's different than that. It should feel kind of more vintage in a way. We kind of originally, we had planned to shoot everything on super eight. Um, but our, the pace of which we were shooting everything that did not make sense. Um, slash it was kind of scary to just like squeeze a super eight camera and be like, we got it and run away. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had, we had too much riding on, on these flashbacks to just, to just kind of do it and hope it worked out and make sure there was no issues with the camera. Um, but, um, yeah, that was the, the initial idea. Let's pick because there are so many different universes. I'd love to just pick the most challenging one for you. What was the hardest one? What were some of the lessons that you learned and, you know, what was so challenging about it? Um, uh, I think the, the Wong Kar Wai universe was the most tricky in that that was actually our biggest look in terms of it. Everything had to look a specific way. The other universes you could, you know, you could make a simple choice like, um, the Rakakuni universe is really designed around the costumes. Like it's these like blue shirts and, and blue hats and white shirts and kind of this bright, hot, hard nineties lighting. And that's what really gives the look of that, of that sequence. Whereas the Wong Kar Wai universe, like, you know, we had to basically paint every scene in, in like these giant swaths of colored light. Um, and we shot at the, um, old LA theater, um, which is also the same place we did the hot dog musical, um that's how and the same place we did the opera verse where she's a chinese opera singer um so we use that location for i think four different universes all in one day well before we get you know, too we, deep explain the wong kar wai universe first and foremost because i wasn't familiar with wong kar wai i became familiar after learning well first of all you noted it as a scene you wanted to mention it was yeah. an absolutely gorgeous scene in the film and i just started throughout the research learning more about uh, Wong Kar Wai. So tell us, first of all, where, how were those scenes inspired? So we, um, the Wong Kar Wai universe is like the best version of Evelyn's universe. She, in which she is an action movie star. She didn't marry her husband, um, but she's running into him, a different version of him in the future as like a successful CEO. Um, you know, and he's, um, 
it's all kind of a nod to um, In the Mood for Love, the Wong Kar Wai film about kind of like a forbidden love. Um, and um, all wear, they're wearing similar outfits, you know, t- um, Keys dressed as Tony Long. And, and it's just that In the Mood for Love was a very beautiful, like iconic film from that period and we kind of wanted to to do something like that to kind of all of a sudden take this very like haggard beat up laundromat owner and put her in this really beautiful like romantic setting um and we also used a thing called um step printing which i believe was done optically when Wong Kar Wai did it but um when you basically repeat frames and you create motion blur as a way to do slow motion that's originally why he did i believe and then i think he really found that aesthetic to be compelling and abstract and he went with it so we did that in camera where we shot everything at six frames a second and then played it back at six frames so the whole the first time she actually sees waymond on top of the stairs um you know the camera is on steady cam drifting slowly and the trick to doing that is if you want something to not be blurred that thing can't move so we'd have michelle or waymond would freeze and then the camera would move and all the people would move around them kind of like a rock within a river. Um, and that's how we created that effect. So, um, the, so the process is called step printing and it, yeah. it, and it sort of created, I mean, those who saw the film, obviously you remember, but there's so much in the film, so you may not, but <laughs> it it's like motion blur, but you're saying that you're shooting it at six frames a second, but in order for objects and people to be isolated and not be blurred, they have yeah. to then be completely still. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Um, it's kind of like long exposure photography. Sometimes if you shoot like, say, a river over 10 seconds, like the rocks in that river will be perfect, like pristine and sharp, but the river itself will be a blur. It's kind of creating that effect. But also, it, it even, but it in itself also steps. So it's blurry, but it's shifting. It's kind of like time is starting and stopping is the effect of it. Like this very weird, low budget take on slow motion or, or freezing things. But that was like a big part of the theme and then kind of, that's the first time in the film we have this more like ornate lighting and very soft and top lit. Um, and Wong Kar Wai was, was a big influence for me kind of growing up. A lot of his films like Chunking Express and Fallen Angels um, were just kind of about outsiders. And so when they meet in the alleyway in the end, that's it's a big nod to him. And that, you know, you have these very ornate, you know, looking people in this dingy alleyway having a very romantic conversation. There's like an authenticity to it that we wanted to go for or an intimacy. And for that one, that's the only time we ever really use green lighting in the film. And so we had our production designer got all these wonderful green neons. And it's just a dirty alley in downtown LA. Like we were right next to another production um, whose parking lot as we were shooting that um, that was the last day of our shoot and they got shut down for COVID. So we, luckily they cleared out um, and we all, and we had, that was our final day of shooting because of COVID as well. Um, but we just kind of covered it in neon, had a bunch of extras and we put up like little pop-up tents and things like that. Um, but we played the whole thing, like all the backgrounds out of focus, which is somewhat of a crime for our production designer. Um, but that's how we kind of created that look was like this big moving again, it's like a mysterious feeling to like, you know, what was supposed to be like kind of Hong Kong. Um, but basically covering it in green neons and building it that way. And also it's the only time in the film that our framing is what we call short sighting when you put the actor's face with no look room, you know, so they're like on the edge of frame looking off the, off the edge of frame mm-hmm. to kind of create this, tend to create like something that stands out because he's actually disagreeing with her in that scene. It starts being romantic and ends in this idea that, that he feels insulted. Um, yeah, it was a long time ago, so I'm trying to like pick the details out of my well, head. Well, you're doing a very good job, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, I'm like reliving it as as we're talking. 
let's talk about the rock scene because I had read in prep that you were considering shooting that on IMAX. Uh, tell me about that. Why, why was that decision even being considered? And what did you ultimately end up shooting the rock scene on? We initially were wanting to shoot all the flashbacks on Super 8 and then like some of the sequences on Super 16. Um, and then we were, because we just wanted to play off the idea of formats, which we do in the film, but we, it's less formats, we play off aspect ratios. But we were really excited about it at first. And then, you know, I, I was like, well, we can, we can do IMAX because like we don't have much money. Um, but um, if we shoot IMAX and it's just rocks, you know, it's, it's what, 10 seconds? It's just rocks sitting on the ledge. So we can get like 200 feet of film and one IMAX camera. We can dust it off and go shoot that and be like, hey, we shot IMAX, like big deal. Um, it was very cute. And production was like, that's very cute. We're not going to do that. That's a lot of time and energy. <laughs> um, and by the time we shot it, you know, we were in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and no one, yeah, they were like, whatever, just do the simplest version of it. And the reason we ended up shooting at those rocks is I, I had pitched shooting at the Anza Boriego, which is just south of the Salton Sea, or south, well, just south of LA by four hours is a better way to put it. Um, but I had um, I had proposed to my wife there, so I kind of knew it was this epic vista, um, and I kept slowly pitching the guys that concept, and they were they weren't really having it at first because they're like, that's a crazy that's a crazy distance to go for for about one minute of the film. Um, but then the pandemic hit, and everyone was like, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> let's let's go take a look. I mean, we went down there, and it felt very silly and kind of crazy because it's very hard to get to, and cars got stuck in the sand, and it was 110 degrees, and it felt like a really bad idea. But we did it because they were like, "What else are we going to do?" It's very, it's something very romantic about you know going to these to this through this really arduous process to shoot two rocks on the edge of like you know on the edge of the universe. Um, but we ended up shooting it on um, yeah, just actually on Alexa, just Alexa Mini. But looking back now, I wish we had shot on the LF because when we did play it in IMAX, I was like, oh, we could have really knocked and blown pupil away if we had shot 4.3 and filled the whole screen. Um, but we didn't. We ended up, our big choice for that was to shoot it on Master Primes, which is the rest of the film is all for the most part vintage glass. And so this was like our one time to be like, we'll shoot like, you know, pure precision, like National Geographic. We'll go for like that Planet Earth vibe. So that was that was the big choice behind it. Let's talk about the camera and lens package for the rest of the film. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. What did you guys ultimately shoot on, and why? You know, lens choices. I'm also curious what cameras you tested ahead of time. Um, we started with the Alexa Mini, and for me, it was Alexa Mini and film. I didn't really have any interest in any of the other cameras per se, unless they could do something very specific. Like for a long time, Red we used to be the only camera that could shoot higher frame rates. So sometimes we'd use that, but the Alexa is fast enough now. Um, or the Venice is wonderful for low light, but we didn't actually have to shoot much low light in this. So we, we started off with the Alexa mini with the hopes of film for some of it. And then producers were like, Oh, you could shoot film or you could have like, you know, an extra half day of shooting. And it's like, Oh, let's, we'll, we'll take the extra half day of shooting. Um, so we, we went with Alexa Mini because I think that's my favorite camera right now. It'll probably be replaced by the new Alexa 35. But I love the Super 35 sensor. Um, I think that's, A, a beautiful sensor, and it's it's got enough... I don't even want to call it grit, calling calling Alexa Mini gritty now. Yeah, exactly. Sounds silly, but after <laughs> shooting on, a, like, everyone's shooting on the Alexa LF, like, the Alexa Mini is now, like, a choice. Um, 
it's uh it's a, it was just a very nice sensor and we still beat it up and shot it at 1600 a lot and tried to actually bring up some of the texture out of it but i just wanted to be able to use all the vintage lenses that are in the film and almost almost every other camera is large format now and you can't use half of the lenses out there mm-hmm. so the the majority of the film was shot on super speeds that's what was part of the the normal verse and the taxes universe where evelyn kind of goes home and has chinese new year in a laundromat those are all on super speeds, which which I love because they can be tack sharp if you want them to. And at the same time, they can fall apart if you open up past the two. Um, and it's just that that perfect level of sharpness that's been stepped on, kind of like watching a film print as opposed to watching like the DVD of it. There's just a little bit of, of texture going on with it. Yeah. Um, and then we shot K35s for the Wong Kar Wai verse. We shot Baltars for hot dog hands. Um, the <laughs> forgot one of my favorite universes is the, is the Stanley Kubrick, um, hot dog monkey universe, the 2001 oh, yeah. sequence. Um, we shot that on Todd AOs, which I think they only gave us one lens because those lenses what, are kind of falling apart. I don't know what those are. Todd they're, AO? Todd AO. Yeah. They're these really beautiful vintage anamorphics that flare real crazy and they can get really milky. And there's some, there's some of them are in great condition and some of them are in horrible condition. Um, but they've been kind of, the, they're like these big boys. They've been around for a while. They're kind of similar to the elite anamorphics, the, the Russian type. I never um, heard of these. I'll put it in the show notes for those of you guys. I'm sure the people in this audience are like, yeah, everyone knows that. How can you not bet? No, but I, I, mean, don't. I don't. And I'm learning. I don't see, I don't, people don't shoot with them that often. They're funky. And we wanted something funky for that. Cause like, even though, <laughs> even though technically like Kubrick's version is not funky at all, we wanted something that was going to help the fact that we were shooting on like a rock across the street from the green screen studio that we, that we just happened to find. Um, and that sequence is all just Daniel Shiner in a monkey suit and one of our stunt, our stunt men and also in a monkey suit and they just moved around the rock 20 times. So it's just a plate shot, like 20 plates of just the same people being monkeys. No way. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, we're trying to go for some scale there and we're like, we'll just, we'll just copy him. We'll just multiply him, have him just run around, try not to fall off the rock. Um, but those are Tadeos. And then we use in the, um, in what we call the action verse or like the main narrative of, of Evelyn, once it's once she starts to like actually like start kicking ass and takes on these powers, it becomes an action film, and you can you can actually track it all the way to to Kiquan. Is my dog going crazy? Can you hear him? Oh, it's fine. Dogs will okay. be dogs. What what kind of dog is it? It's a I call it L.A. Brown dog. He's just a little bit of everything with some Chihuahua in there. So it's just like short, long, funny tail. Not Chihuahua, but no, he's yeah, L.A. Brown dog. That's what I call him. He must be so happy when you come home. After being away for a long time. Yeah, he's shocked to see me. <laughs> like, what are <laughs> you doing? Who is here? this? This guy's vaguely familiar. I sort of know who he is. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I think he's. Oh, God. Um, we were talking about lenses. Okay. <laughs> we got, and they um, got distracted with dog talk. Um, yeah, I think we were. Yeah, the. The 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 main set of lenses that we ended up using for the film were were hawk anamorphics, the hawk V lights, yeah. and and, you, and there's a transition in the film, um, the chapstick sequence in um in the IRS building when when Key actually pulls out chapstick and starts chewing on it, and then snaps his head back and he get all of a sudden he knows kung fu. That's the very um, beginning of the um, fanny pack fight, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
And there's like this whole kind of Western buildup of them drawing their guns and pulling it out. And there's like even like a Western wide two shot of like someone brushing someone aside, like get back in the saloon, be safe. Um, and when he snaps his head back, the camera then cuts to a top shot as he opens his eyes. And then we kind of pull back and pull away. Yes. And that's the first time you'll see the aspect ratio like slowly drift down and like go into two, three, five subtly. But there's something, it's the idea that the world has changed and that, and that something's going to be different. And then, the, and then from then on, the rest of the sequence is Hawk Anamorphics um, for that, for the rest of the everything that basically everything that happens inside the IRS building. Um, we also used a couple other anamorphics in there too. Like um, there's something called Scorp- Scorpio anamorphics and um, Atlas anamorphics, which are really beautiful. And those are wider anamorphics that don't distort a lot. That's what we were afraid of was of anamorphic was you can get real bendy on the edges. And we wanted to be able to do wide shots that didn't feel silly or didn't warp the actor's faces too dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, and for a film with not a ton of wides, like you mentioned earlier, it's interesting to hear all this anamorphic work. Um, and I know you used um, oh, what are those things called? The shot where you go through the hands, I, like a is it like a scope a probe, probe lens? <coughs> yeah. Yes, I know probe you guys lens, are using yeah. those too. I mean, you're basically using everything. It's all it's all happening in the, <laughs> in the film. I love that. Um, Christopher Sousa on Instagram was asking about camera and lens testing, but it sounds like uh, you already knew the camera you wanted to do and. We tackled a lot of the um, uh, the questions about the lens selections that you made. But is there anything you can say to Christopher Sousa's question about lens testing? Do you feel like perhaps we may have covered it in the past couple? Yeah, of I months? mean, we went. I mean, we went to Keslo Keslo Camera, and they have a really beautiful lens test area where they have like a wall of like neons and little tiny LEDs and bokeh. We we basically ran through all the different lenses, kind of trying to debate which anamorphic to go with. And a lot of the anamorphics were either like, we looked at the masters, we were really excited about those, but they felt just too sterile. And so we ended up with the Hawks, which I've kind of always liked. It's like a, you know, it's comparable to like some, some of the Panavision glass out there. And then we also took the camera to set and we actually shot Michelle's stand in, in a bunch of different places at the laundromat, at the IRS building. And we did all these different tests. Cause then we went and built, um, a bunch of looks of our colorist, Alex Bickle. Like that was a big part of it too, was building LUTs for the show. So we built a LUT for the action verse. We built, um, we built a LUT for the musical, which was based off the sound of music. So you'll see there's a lot more magenta and greens and like a very weird patina happening with the skins. We built a LUT for the bagel verse, which is that giant white temple filled with smoke. <laughs> um that was kind of based off of like weird like nightmarish films like labyrinth and a couple other funny areas like these weird kind of printed up blacks and like something just kind of off and creepy um so we, we basically yeah our camera test basically meant we collected a bunch of footage and then spent a long time kind of messing around with stuff in the grade All right, I want to take a quick break and talk to Zach Lipovsky. He is the founder of Shotlister. And Zach, welcome to Go Creative Show. Hi, how's it going? We've been using Shotlister in BC Media Productions for maybe about six months now. And it is such a game changer because, you know, obviously it's a Shotlist creation app, but it does so much more. And I want you here, just in our short time together, to tell our audience just one of the many features about Shotlister that you want them to know. For sure. Well, it comes with a huge amount of features that come right out of the box. Um, But we do have a subscription called Shotlister Pro. 
which enables a certain suite of high-end features that our most pro users need. Um, the biggest one is CrewSync, which allows you to upload all your projects to the cloud and sync it with your whole crew. Your crew doesn't need to be a subscriber, just the author. So it allows you to digitally share your shot list as it changes with the whole crew wherever they are in the world, which can be really cool. It also allows you to add storyboards, import scripts so that you can build out all of your scene headers from a script. Um, it allows you to do circle takes. It allows for episodes. So that if you're doing, you know, if you're shooting more than one episode in a day, you can break out your projects that way. All sorts of cool stuff um, that just makes it a lot easier to get your day. <laughs> so, that, so that by the end of the day, you got all the shots that you hope to get. Uh, Shotlister mobile apps are free, uh, but there's also a macOS version and the subscription-based Shotlister Pro that we've been talking about right now. And the cool thing is, if you email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com, you get a free gift. All you have to do is tell them which one you want. You can say, I want the Shotlister for macOS for free, or I want a year of Shotlister Pro for free. You're going to get one or the other, whatever you choose. And all you have to do is email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com. Zach, Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. We have a lot of questions about the breakneck shooting schedule for everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, Tyler Markovic and Justin Yorosky both are essentially asking the same question about the shooting schedule and just how crazy it was. I'm hearing 37, 40 days, something like that for the entire film. Can you talk to us about the shooting schedule? Yeah, well, we, you know, the, we had, the budget was $15 million, which sounds, in my head, sounds like a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but when you start breaking it down with all the different departments, um, it, it kind of disappears pretty quickly. We had a full stunt team the entire show. Like every day that, I mean, this is one of the reasons why it works out so well is, is we had, you know, stunts were rigging and practicing stunts every day, even if we weren't shooting them, because the next day we'd be going and shooting a stunt. And it's funny looking back on it now, I was like, there wasn't that many stunts. And I, and I forgot there's like stunts all the time on the show. Constantly. People are falling, That's all being it is. thrown. We cut some of my favorite stunts. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, like in the opening of it, is so upset that she's been offended by Jobu or that she's failed Jobu, that she just does a running swan dive off the first floor of the IRS building into onto the bottom floor um, or the third floor, I should say. Um, and stunt spent a whole day building boxes and we did like a cowboy switch where Jamie like runs out of frame when her stunt double runs back in the frame and jumps over the ledge and it got cut because of time. Um, but the, sorry to backtrack, but we shot 38 days, I believe was the original total number of shoot days and then we got cut down to 36 because covid hit and wow. so which is probably like not a, not a bad thing you know we got to then like you know kind of like you know lick our wounds and go back and be like okay because our, our final two days were the big green screen shoot and we were not really prepared for it it was the final fight sequence for michelle and her daughter are fighting and Every punch is a different universe. So we yes. had to like build a build a lighting array and build like a click track. Like the actors are fighting to a click track, which is just like a constant rhythm. Yeah. So they can be like, and one, two, face, kick, boom, throw. No. And way. every time they would do that, we program the lighting to shift with the click track. So then no matter what, the actors could do it. Um and then we had to then go and research all the different plates and figure all the plates out in advance. So it's, we built this really stupid looking lighting array. I wish it looked cool, but it was like, you know, a full film school. It's like, 
because you keep having to add lights for each universe, it's just like 30 C stands with lights around these actors looking very stupid. Um, um, but, do you have any um, photos of it? I do have some photos of oh, it. Oh, if you can share those. We, you have videos and photos? Oh my God, please, please send yeah. that to us. We would love to share that with the audience. But what, what made it harder for the schedule was we, we had to do that in LA and Michelle wasn't in LA. So we shot that with Jobu or Stephanie Shu and Michelle's double. And then I had to take all of that and send all these designs, these terrible, these like really messy, just for that one. Send them to Paris or um, another DP named Kaname shot that shot Michelle with it. So we basically had to shoot all of Michelle's scenes, you know, like a year later in LA without Michelle with her, her stand-in, shoot it, show them exactly what the framing was, how we're going to light it, and then send it to Paris. And then Kaname and, and, and his team rebuilt it and then shot Michelle. And then we spent a night in LA from about midnight to 8 a.m. over Zoom directing Michelle and working with them to get it all right. And then that's how we reshot. That's how we picked up all of Michelle shots for the film. There's actually a a sequence in which Michelle is in the RV with Waymond and he's talking about divorce and how it's, how he thinks it'll actually help them if they talk about it. And Michelle's not even there. We, we shot Waymond in, in an RV in the middle of Simi Valley with, with just a stand in next to him. And he does this really beautiful performance. And then we then had to put Michelle in a green screen and do that in Paris, which I don't think anyone's noticed. No one's come up to me yet and been like, is, was no. Michelle not in the van? And I was like, no, she was, she was not in the van. I would never in a million years think of that scene as a special effect or visual effect scene. Yeah. It just it, especially among all of the craziness of the film, that's such a small scene. <laughs> you you would never in a million years think that. So despite the crazy janky setup that you're talking about, seems like you guys were able to achieve yeah. quite a bit. I mean, the 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 lighting was janky. The 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 you know the our gaffer did some very high tech work and actually was programming the lighting in Paris from LA, which is pretty surreal. We had a whole it's like, amazing. we had a whole like operations center set up at the editor's studio. Uh, no, there's some very high tech work being done, but my lighting choice for the, for the lighting felt very janky because we had to, had to keep adding lights, which feels silly. I'm always so impressed by that. It's so weird. It's like anytime somebody explains something that's like, Oh, and the actor wasn't even there. I'm, I'm always like, no way. Just for some reason, that's always so shocking to me. Even after doing hundreds of these interviews, I just love that kind of stuff. It's, it's so interesting to hear uh, what was real and what wasn't. Um, let's talk about the, uh, well, just in general, all the fight scenes. Um, we talked a little bit about it now. You said that they were fighting to a click track, but can you talk about more of the the big, large fight scenes in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, perhaps working with the choreographers, how you kind of made these scenes come to life, and the type of things that maybe cinematographers that are unfamiliar with shooting scenes like that may not really know. Well, a big, a big part of it is, um, you know, the Daniels worked with our stunt coordinator, Tim, and um, more specifically, um, our fight choreographers, two fellows named uh, Brian Andy called Marshall Club. And they basically started designing fights of them way before we started shooting. And the first time I actually met Key was actually at a fight rehearsal in like Orange County um, at just like a parkour course. Um, that's where Brian and Andy were working out of. And they saw so all the fights in the film were, were pre-choreographed by generally by the Daniels and these, these two brothers um, that they found on YouTube. 
um, which was kind of surreal. And I remember they're pitching that to the, to the producers being like, there's these guys on YouTube. They're amazing. They are, they are like embody entirely what we love about Hong Kong action films. We want them to do all the fight choreography. Wow. Talk about um, old school filmmaking meets new school filmmaking. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And Brian and Andy, I don't think had any formal training. They literally learned, um, you know, um, fighting through YouTube clips and watching movies. Um, so a big part of what, what working with them was, was, but seeing how they don't, not only are they really good at choreography, but they understand the camera really well. And so like the Daniels and them would, would really figure out the camera moves to go with the story. Cause all, all the fights are telling a story generally, like even like the fanny pack fight, a lot of it is about like keeping, keep, keeping them from drawing their guns and trying to knock guns away from them. And then slowly kind of taking them out and like dealing with one problem at a time. Um, you know, and then the other fights, there's the butt plug fight where, you know, she's trying to survive and doesn't know how to stop them until she rips out the butt plugs. Um, you know, and then the, there's the, we call it the pizza sign spinner fight where she's fighting in a tiny room. It's like, how could she possibly fight 10 people? It's like, oh, well, she has a giant shield. She can probably deflect, you know, it was, it was trying to make all the fights, not just the fight and trying to make them all themed. And then visually for us, it was trying to, to, to explore like the, you know, the, the fanny pack fight was kind of like the more like blunt fighting and that it's all kind of top lit and very clear visually. And it's supposed to be funny for that purpose. It's supposed to be very absurd. You know, the sign spinner fight was a little trickier and, and, and more absurd in a way. And so that almost becomes more silhouetted, you know, and then the, <laughs> you know, the, the butt plug fight is actually supposed to be kind of unnerving and, and like a, like you, you feel like she's going to lose. That's kind of all uplit kind of, you know, we, we staged a fake construction site to kind of give it that more moody, almost firelit feeling to it. Like the yeah. stakes are pretty high. Um, and then after that, the Daniels are like, we can't do any more fighting. Like the audience is going to be sick of fighting. So the next fight you see is an empathy fight, which is all in slow motion where Michelle literally uses empathy to like stop people that get, gets in her way. And then there's one final fight of her and, and her daughter, but the whole fight is basically Michelle trying to tell her that, that she loves her and that's not actually a fight. She's just stopping her. Um, and that, that was, if you watch that fight, that fight was crazy. Cause that's like 40 different locations. I think mm. something nuts. We, 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 we revisited multiple locations. We shot, there used to be stages in LA called DC stages that literally had every stage you could think of, but it was really crappy. So like, we're shooting them in like a prison. We're shooting, <laughs> we're shooting them in a hospital. We're shooting them like, you know, flashing through a forest. Like it was like, it was just like the set that was really bad and the Daniels got real excited because they're like they have so many sets and from one angle they could look really good but from only one angle so let's go there and we'll spend a whole day shooting as much as we possibly can I think we did 40 setups at that location of all sorts of like weird small scenes like there's like a, there's like a shot of a bus running in the traffic there's like a shot of like Jobu at a bar you know, for girlfriend, there's all these like really tiny moments. The sign spinner was shot, shot just outside of it. It's all these like little tiny pieces that we, they kept adding and collecting. And with the, with so many scenes, so many setups, so many shots, I mean, back to my question from a few moments ago, how are you keeping this all organized in your production schedule? Like what, I mean, I know you're not, you know, you're not the producer, you're not responsible for all of that, but I'm sure a lot has to be planned in your shot list and in the way that you structure your days in order to meet those demands. I mean, it, it was, it was doable because we shot, you know, the majority of the film on one location. I think 
you know, we spent five weeks in the IRS building. So 25 days there. And that allowed us to ping pong and kind of go back and forth and start knocking chunks out. You know, we tried to go as chronological as we could. You know, there were some scenes that were really scary, like the empathy fight. Shooting any action sequence on the staircase is a mistake. No one should ever do it. I will never do it again. (laughs) So lesson learned, don't ever do that again. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, there's two staircase fights in this film. And I was like, why why do we pick a staircase? This is the worst. This is the worst place. What's so bad about it? Why? There's no camera platform. We had to like, we had to get techno cranes to shoot the staircase and they're not doing anything techno craney. They're literally just there because you can't like fl- to float a camera like two feet off the like, you know, off the, the edge of a staircase or to have get it in a certain place or have the actors move around. Um, it's just like a very narrow corridor that um, you can't really put cameras anywhere that really is designed to look one or two directions. So it was it works and that, you know, the film is about the ascension of her and like the idea of her goal being at the top and her fighting her way up there. That was the theme of it. But in shooting it, we were all like we could not get we cannot wait to get be done with this because it became very limiting in terms of camera and blocking. Um, but, um, in terms of the scheduling of it, yeah, I mean, then the last two weeks were kind of psychotic, but with the Daniels, they know what they're asking for is a lot. And so they kind of, you know, they put it up to me and Jason, the production designer to be like, right, here's what we need. What's the best way to do it. And we can walk into a location and be like, if we shoot this one direction, I don't have to light it. If we shoot this one direction, we frame all that out. I can shoot it like that. And that's how we, that's how we, we got most of the film was, them putting faith in us and being like, okay, you have gun to your head. You have 20 minutes. How do we shoot this shot? And it's like, Oh, you do it like this. You know, we have to change something that was written in the script subtly. Like he can't be there. He has to walk in and see it off camera. Then we can do that. And they're like, great, let's do that. Like they're not, they're not, um, they're really down to collaborate and figure out they care much more about, you know, their whole, their whole shtick, if you will, is, is seeing so much and feeling so much. So they're much more interested in being able to, to get all these sequences and ideas out than they are to get all of them perfect and like dialed in. Cause they say, you know, cause they're like, it's five seconds. Like no one's going to care if like the lighting was slightly off or no one's going to care if it doesn't make all the sense in the world. Cause hopefully they're not going to notice cause it was so quick. Yeah. Um, so that was a big part of it was just like, Oh, the fact that we've been kind of working together for a decade allowed us to really flow through this, um, the demands of the script. Well, you've been working with the Daniels for a while, but also doing, I mean, you've done feature films, but you've also done music videos. And I'm curious, does the experience of doing music videos, um, do you think that that helped you with a film like this? Because, you know, oh, yeah. at least DPs <laughs> that I've talked to on the show that have a lot of uh, music video experience say that schedules are crazy, you know, ideas run wild. It's kind of a, kind of a playground um because it can sort of be anything uh talk to me about that i mean do you, the skills from shooting music videos how did it translate for you on everything everywhere all, all at once um i mean a lot of those skills came from the daniels you know the very first thing i did was a music video with them and we did like 80 setups in one day something nuts like their like their whole gag when i worked with them is like we'd be shooting of course with two cameras and I'd look out the corner of my eye and they'd bring out a 5D to like try to sneak in an insert <laughs> as we're as we're going. And I'd be like, stop, stop, we can do it. We'll shoot faster. We don't, we don't fuck put that camera away. That thing is terrible. <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, and that was like kind of their theme. And I think, you know, once they saw that, I was really passionate about making sure that all the shots looked compelling. 
I don't want to say like good or fancy, but compelling. Like they, you know, they eventually were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out a way that we can shoot all the inserts on the same camera. Um, but that was like from the very beginning, their concept of like, it's about the idea and not about the visuals, even though they are very visual directors, that was a big theme for them. Um, and we kind of had this like training ground of just going through all these different crazy music videos. I don't think I've ever done a music video with them. That's not crazy. You know, I think we got to do one, one shot video, but that of course was like motion control overnight in a mall with a guy falling down the escalator for three minutes and like these surreal stunts. Who was that for? Um, what artist? Um, My Machines. Oh, I'm not um, familiar with that. It's like a one shot featuring Gary Newman and he's just someone falling down the escalator for three minutes. And it's actually our stunt. I was actually our stunt, um, our, Tim Ulick, who um, is our stunt coordinator on the film, he um, he's actually the stuntman in that music video. That's the first time we met Tim. Um, and he took a real bad beating falling down the escalator for three minutes um, to a point where they had to like change out his jacket three times because it started getting shredded. Because oh escalator, escalators are sharp. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's the first time we met him is he's the poor, the poor, the poor fellow just constantly falling down an escalator. Um, but yeah, no music, music videos work because you're just used to not having enough time and you're used to figuring out like what, how to prioritize or more importantly, how to light, you know, for, for some, for speed, knowing that if you, you can, if you find a lighting setup, say like you opt for backlight more often than front light or things like that you know that you can it's easier to turn around and move and the lighting's a bit more universal in some of the cases for your coverage so you can move faster mm-hmm. or just trying to make a broad choice of lighting or deciding that oh this scene's going to be lit by practicals but that was the big thing in, in this film was figuring out the lighting sources for all these sequences and making that choice in advance that's what allowed us to move at a clip like the fanny pack is all lit by fluorescence because we wanted to look 360 well i've read that um you used quite a bit of astera tubes uh, i'm sorry titan tubes um, in the film, just because of the flexibility, giving you all the color, giving you, um, you know, the ability to control them. Any, you know, any additional thoughts on those Titan tubes, why you chose them, what the experience was like? Um, I don't think anything really exists that's like Titan tubes right now. You know, it's a, it's a fluorescent that can be any color that's programmable and it has about, I don't know, 10, 20 pixels in it. So you can program a chase sequence through it. Um, it's battery powered. Um, the color and it's constantly getting better. I kind of like music videos. I grew up with like, not grew up, but I started out with everything being under 20 amps, meaning all the lights had to fit in my car and they all had to be able to, to be plugged into like a household socket. So I kind of grew up with like, you know, par cans and Kino flows. Um, and uh, we use them in the hallway because you can do color chases with pixel modes. So you can actually have colors shifting, but have them shifting physically in the line. So the first time you meet Jobu, you see that a lot in the hallway. We're able to kind of create this void and have it kind of create like a Looney Tunes effect at the same time of the light fluctuating and being a character in its own. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left, and I want to make sure that I, I hear from you how you achieved these verse jump scenes, which have really become like the iconic shot of everything everywhere all at once. Um, everybody wants to know how it was achieved. There are videos online that kind of show how it was done, but I've got you here. So it's like straight from the horse's mouth. Talk to me about these verse jump scenes. Are they, um, you mean like just the, those like the quick hyperlapse? Light? Yeah. The, no, like the hyperlapse shot where the, the shot where, um, well, it happens a few times, but where she sort of like gets pulled backwards and she's going through a hyperlapse behind her. Um, I'd love to hear about that. Oh, so for the hyperlapse shot, 
it all that footage was from all of us from Dan Kwan. He was just travel. He again, we've making this movie for years. So over the years, he'd be traveling, and he had like a GoPro like camera. And he would just if he was in the airport or in a mall or in a restaurant or at a garden or somewhere, he would just walk straight for like you know a one minute and just film this perspective of it. And then we put them all together. So the idea of like you're kind of flying through all these different spaces. So and that's then just to, stuff to, that he shot, just casually That's just stuff that own. he shot, yeah. And I think maybe, I'm not sure, I think it's all stuff that he shot. Even when we were scouting locations, he'd be like, this location's terrible, but we can use it for that one shot. And he would just walk down the hall and, and shoot a shot, um, knowing he could use it later. Uh, to achieve it was even more cumbersome because we then had to take that footage and put it on LED walls and surround Michelle with it. So we basically covered her in um, um, LED tiles um, and we built walls or a tunnel, if you will, of it. And we played the footage back. And the idea was that the ambience or the color shift of the war of the world's passing by, you could feel it on her face. So we built a tunnel and then played it back and then had her on green screen and then do like a camera move inside. And that's how we achieved that. I mean, it's still, it's not perfect to, to do it perfectly would be an insane lighting rig because all of the lighting in that is basically soft. And in reality, it'd be a lot harsher. Like I'd love to actually build that lighting rig, but I think it would probably cost $200,000 to build that lighting rig to actually make it feel like she was there. Um, but our version was like, well, at least we can get the color shift appropriate and like the, the, some of the spectral stuff happening. Um, and then we had to then send, send this diet. We built it and shot it with a Michelle stand in. And then we sent the diagram and the video and sent that to Paris where they then had to then rebuild that same led tunnel and shoot it with real Michelle. Um, while we kind of looked over zoom and made sure it worked out. It was very silly. We had all, we all had the most technical stuff we had to do in LA and then send to Paris, um, which of course they, they did a wonderful job of doing it, but that's how we achieved it. I mean, the film is just spectacular. And I think, yeah, I'm sure when you look at it, I'm sure everyone involved, just like all of us, you know, anything we're involved in, we look at it and we say, oh, we could have done this, we could have done that, we could have done this. But I think the magic of the film is in the budgetary restrictions that you had. I just feel like lower budgets can sometimes breed more genius because you've got to be incredibly creative. And, you know, despite all of that, um, and it's not like you had a super, super duper low budget, but the budget you had to create the film you did is just incredible. And it's because of those t kind of tightening and restrictions that I think forced the innovation and forced the creativity. I mean, do you agree? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that's all, I think obstacles are, are always what makes, make, make obstacles force you to make more creative decisions. And, and this film, we, we spent a long time doing that. And I think that's always been, I think I'd rather be told no than yes half the time because it's going to make me think harder about why we're doing it or how to do it more importantly. Now that is a great quote to end on. <laughs> Larkin Seipel is, uh, thank you so much for being on the show and I'll put, I'll put a link to your IMDb and, and your work in the show notes as well. Everything, everywhere, all at once is now available on digital. So wherever you go and buy your movies, go and buy this film if you haven't already. But I kind of have a feeling the people listening to this show have seen it, have bought it and love it. So thank you so much, Larkin, for being on. I really appreciate it and love to have you back for your next project. Yeah, thanks for having me. A huge thank you to Larkin Seipel, the director of photography for everything, everywhere, all at once. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us today. I also want to thank our sponsor, Shotlister. 
Shotlister is a Shotlist creation app for production. It is the best in the business. And if you email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com, you can tell them which free gift you want, either Shotlister for macOS or one free year of Shotlister Pro. So send them that email. I also want to thank Connor Crosby at ignitionvisuals.com. He produces the show. And Dave Siegel from seagullsound.com. He mixes and masters, makes the show sound so good. Of course, Go Creative Show is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. On YouTube, we put some exclusive content and sprinkle in some B-roll of whatever we're talking about. So it really is the best way to experience Go Creative Show. So check it out for yourself. Subscribe and hit the notification bell. And of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we'll see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.